From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. What's going on? Happy Monday, y'all. Yeah. How's Monday in August. It is what it is. You got to bring more snark than that, Joanna. <laughs> it's the dog days of summer. Why do, they, why do they call it the dog days? I actually know the answer to this one. Oh. oh. Tell us. Do tell. I believe. Why? Okay. You know, fa- uh, astronomy fact checkers out there come at me. But I believe <laughs> that the name originates because uh, this time of year in uh, the late summer in the Northern Hemisphere is when uh, the star Sirius in the constellation Canis mm. Major, i.e. the big dog, uh, which is uh, the brightest star visible from Earth, uh, is most prominent. Ah, all right. Yeah, you were then not ready for that know. level of nerdiness, but I did it. <laughs> I love it. So since you are the person with the nerdiness and all the knowledge today, uh, what have you been drinking? That's only until we get to the topic, which I think we will see your nerdiness and knowledge hard at work, Adam. But anyhow, what have I been drinking? couple of things interesting. Uh, my cousin, a uh, fellow wine industry pro, brought over a really lovely bottle of 2006 uh, Domaine de la Jeunesse Chopin uh, Chateauneuf-de-Pop, which, you know, an mm-hmm. interesting wine. I feel like I've had some mixed results with Chateauneuf-de-Pop of that age, but uh, this one was still in really nice condition, really kind of still lovely, bright fruit character, lots of earthiness. Uh, so that was kind of a treat. And then I think the only other thing that I had recently uh, that was um, also pretty cool is um, a relatively new vermouth to me. And I'm literally trying to remember what it's called, which is, you know, probably should have been prepared. Uh, but it's made by the uh, Poli family that make like a, some of the more well-known grappas um, from Italy. And it's a like a Torino style white vermouth. Um, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that category of vermouth is like, kind of a mixed bag i think sometimes but because they're not dry vermouths they're still kind yeah. of uh you know somewhat sweet and sometimes can play a little too just kind of citrusy for me this one has a really mm-hmm. pronounced herbaceous character though and uh, i've been just mostly drinking that on the rocks as discussed on previous episodes that's one of my favorite summertime kind of i'm making dinner drinks is just vermouth on the rocks or maybe with a splash of soda nice and yeah been enjoying that bottle how about you joanna nice um yeah this weekend um I had my first sour beer in a while that I've liked. Um, mm-hmm. It was Hudson Brewing's Aria One, which is a sour double IPA with coconut, lemon, and lime. And I liked it because it was very tart. I feel like they're very tart generally, but the coconut added some much-needed sweetness and roundness to it that I thought was really nice. Um, and I also had... We were at brunch, and I had mm-hmm. a rosé piscine. You know that kind of drink? No. Oh, you never had a piscine before? I don't think it I It means have. pool in French, and it's like right. a big... It's like a big wine goblet, um, and I think how it's what it's. Did you just have a big glass of rosé and you're make, giving it a fancy name, Joanna? <laughs> no, no, no. So in the okay. south of France, I believe this is a drink. It's rosé, like a big goblet of rosé, like a big bowl, uh-huh. bowl goblet with ice. But the ones that I've had in New York have had other things like um, sometimes vodka, sometimes like lavender or other things, um, and grapefruit soda or some sort of grapefruit element. So the Mm. one I had over the weekend, which was at Frenchette, 
um, had Ooh, French, yeah. mm-hmm, uh, vodka rosé and pamplemousse. Unclear if it was like a soda soda or like a um, sparkling water, but it was very good. Very cool. Yeah. What about you, Adam? So well. Oh, and then all, obviously all the drinks on I, Friday. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> on Friday we had our staff party at the Long Island Bar, um, so, very which fun. was really fun. And I drank a lot of the drinks, mm-hmm. but two of my favorites were a Miami Vice, mm-hmm. which was which awesome. Is? So this was a swirl of the Frozen Cosmo because it's Toby Caccini's bar. So for those who are unfamiliar with who Toby is, he is the bartender who is um, credited with inventing the Cosmopolitan when he was the head bartender at the Odeon. Mm -hmm. Um, And now he owns the Long Island Bar in Brooklyn. And he doesn't want to have a Cosmo on the menu for obvious reasons. But (laughs) he has a frozen one because he's like, look, I'm going to get asked for it. So it's there. And then he always has a different frozen drink and Right now, it's a frozen pina colada because it's really hot out. Mm-hmm. And of Miami Vice is when you swirl the two together. Oh. So that was really fun. Uh, and apparently, Miami Vice is when you swirl any fr- two frozen drinks together. Okay, I was going to ask. That's what I was told by the man himself. So I'm going to take <laughs> his word for it. Um, it's not just, it's not, because I'd always thought it was always a frozen daiquiri and a frozen pina colada swirled together. But apparently, it's any two drinks swirled together can be a Miami Vice. So, this is the Miami Vice. And the other thing is he made me, he talks about it on Cocktail College when he comes on to talk about the Gimlet. Um, but he made me his his father's gin and tonic, which was oh, really awesome. Us. So it's, you know, he takes a little bit of the lime cordial that he makes for the Gimlet. And then he adds the tonic, the gin, and then it's like a ton of sliced limes that kind of are floating at the top. So it's, a really, so it's in a really tall, 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 big pint glass. And so you can, you know, just, it's very refreshing and you can drink it over the course of like 30 to 45 minutes and there's, you know, it stays cold and was really tasty. Uh, so those were the, the two best things I drank. And then in terms of wine, I had some delicious Greek wine over, uh, over the weekend as well. Um, had a bottle of Zeno Mavro from Alpha Estates, which mm-hmm. was, which was pretty oh, dope. Yes. And also a really, really delicious bottle of Malagusia. I'm probably saying it completely wrong from Skouras Winery. Nice. So both really great wines. And what about the Nebuchadnezzar you brought to uh, the bar? Oh, yes, we did bring a Nebuchadnezzar to the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we It was a, a bottle of the Morgon that's mm-hmm. brought in by Kermit Lynch that basically everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason we brought that wine was because it was the wine that was for sale in a Nebuchadnezzar at the wine shop down the block. <laughs> and, That's a good and wine. We, and we told, yeah, it was good. Yeah. But we told, you know, we told Toby we were going to bring in a big bottle of wine. And when... Uh, Tim McCurdy and I went into the wine shop down the block from the Long Island bar. This was the huge bottle. And we're like, how much is that? And they're like, $260. And we're like, we'll take it. <laughs> so I think they were pretty shocked that they sold it. I think yeah. big bottles of wine are so fun. Yeah. And then Keith opened it, which was fun as well. Because everyone thought we needed like a special corkscrew. And Keith's like, no, man, just standard. And yeah. it was just a standard corkscrew. <laughs> I will tell you, Joanna, that they fun. are fun to have, they are not super fun to serve from having done it. No. Oh my times. god, I bet not. Uh, yeah, you have to have <laughs> you have to be very uh, coordinated and strong. <laughs> it was interesting because yeah, watching people, watching people try to serve from it in the beginning when Toby's team was like pouring from it, it was like a little awkward. And then of course, as the wine left the bottle, it became easier and easier and easier. But yeah, at the beginning, it's like super big and heavy, and you're like, you know, it was great though. So we are going to talk about a little bit of a current breaking news topic here on the podcast today um, and use 
this news topic as a way to sort of, I think, talk about just the industry as a whole. Uh, so for those who are aware of some who are not, you may not even be aware of the brand, to be honest, if you're a listener to the podcast. But this past week, uh, the brand house announced via its founder, Helena, that it was going to be closing within the next month. And I think there were there was definitely a reaction from a certain group of people in the world of the internet on Twitter and some other you know beverage writers, et cetera, that were mm-hmm. kind of shocked by this. I think others sort of expected that this could have happened. But for those who are unaware, House has been around since 2019. Um, it marketed itself as a low alcohol spirit, although it actually is a vermouth, just for accuracy's sake, right? Mm-hmm. That's it's registered with the TTB as a vermouth. It's made, it is a vermouth. Um, but marketed as a low alcohol spirit, uh, I think in order to sort of capitalize on people who are drinking more spirits and be interested in more spirits and launched as a pure DTC brand. Helena, the founder, had his 20 years of experience in uh, tech in Silicon Valley and had worked on a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, especially via um, a really famous design firm that had launched a lot of the uh, you know, direct-to-consumer brands we know, including Warby Parker, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a big differentiating factor for it back in 2019, right? Yes, it was going to be all direct-to-consumer, mm-hmm. pure DTC. Um, and I think what I was pretty surprised about from learning this past you know, week is that the brand raised $19 million, which is a lot of money. Lots of, uh, you know, startups never raise 19 million. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money to have raised. It was, I think a $5 million round initially, and then another 14 million and was attempting to raise an additional 10 million to continue to grow. And ultimately I think try to sell and the round fell through the investors pulled out and they are, have announced they're running out of money. And basically they will be you know, by the time you're hearing this, they'll have basically three more weeks until they close. So, you know, people were upset about this because I think it was definitely a brand that was ubiquitous online, especially if you were on Instagram, you saw it everywhere. Um, but I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from it closing, which is what I want to talk about. And it was still independent, right? Yes, independent. But this is what I want to talk about today. So I think it's, it's a fun conversation to have because as you guys both know, this is my background is entrepreneur, entrepreneurship and business and fundraising and things like that. So mm-hmm. sort of the I want to use this as, as a conversation for that. But before we go into that, I'm just curious from both of you, like what were your reactions when you heard about it closing? Were you really aware of the brand in the, in the past that you had it, you know, Joanna, you know, first, I guess from you as, as, you know, a drinks and beverage, food and beverage writer, what was the first time that you became aware of the brand? I I feel like, Definitely through social media is how I became aware of it because it has a very distinctive design, right? And I think that's what it it kind of like it stood out for its aesthetic. I know we don't want to have the aesthetic conversation right now about it, but I think, you know, back in 2019, there were maybe a few non-alcoholic spirits on the market that I was aware of, like a a seed lip kind Mm -hmm. of situation and... House, I think, came out, and I'm not sure a lot of people actually knew or understood what it was. Um, to yeah, your I mean, point earlier, like it is a it's a vermouth. But to be I, fair, some writers are even still calling it non-alcoholic right, on right. Twitter, and they're wrong. Yep, I think it's kind of part of this movement. Um, maybe kicked off this lower ABV movement. Right. So for me, actually, I didn't realize it only launched in 2019. I thought it had been around for a lot longer. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the extent of my awareness and then moving into the – so coming from the food space um, because I feel like it, it had gotten 
a good amount of coverage in that space. Um, and then moving into the drink space, kind of understanding where it sits um, amongst like the drinks industry um, has been kind of an interesting thing to me too. So I actually hadn't, I didn't know if it had been, you know, bought yet. So I don't have a lot of response to this news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, much. Zach? I mean, were you, besides, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you knew of house because, you know, we had an interview on the podcast during like, the say, height of COVID. That was how I learned about it was yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you sent me a file with your, of your wow. interview with the founders. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Here's a brand. I don't know. I gotta say, it's funny. I it, house has existed in this space that I just, I think I don't enter very often. Yeah, some of it is yeah. like an Instagram algorithm thing where like I'm not, I, I'm not really its target audience. I don't think, but also it's very lifestyle e, very lifestyle versus drinks e. Yeah, exactly. And I think it it is something where you see. To me, it's existed in something of a similar place, not so much to some of the other non-ALK or low-ALK brands that have either preceded it or or followed it, because those have, as we'll, I think, discuss, a stronger retail presence. It's felt more to me, and I think a point I want to get your both of your opinion on later on in the conversation, it's felt more to me like some of the DTC wine clubs that have popped yeah. up and or existed and i think a, an interesting point of comparison at some point for us in this conversation will be wink which we talked about uh last mm -hmm. year when it tried and failed to have an ipo initially yeah and i think it's it, it comes to this question of that i know you're particularly interested in getting into adam which is kind of like can you create a drinks brand purely through dtc and what we've seen from house recently is Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, so I think one of the things you bring up, which is really interesting because they talk about this in our interview with them, is that they purposefully, when they launched, did not try to get press from the traditional beverage and food publications. Mm -hmm. They went they went after lifestyle, Vogue, mm -hmm. et cetera. Now, one could argue there were that was smart because they were building more of a lifestyle brand. One could also argue that was smart because beverage and food publications would have immediately asked, would immediately called out that it wasn't a low alcohol spirit, that it was vermouth. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was questions they didn't really want to have to answer early on. So they just, you know, didn't pitch publications like ours, Eater, et cetera. Additionally, right, like there's a lot of small brands out there. So like to 2019, like what what does Vinepair have to gain or Eater or whatever to, you know, going after the brand that early on and saying, this isn't low alcohol spirit. This is vermouth. You know, like you kind of wait around to see if it's successful, if it, you know, starts to grow. And then as journalists, you, you know, decide whether or not you're going to cover it after that. Right. The thing I think is interesting is even this week, the majority of people who've reported house going under have been business publications, yep, tech crunch, tech crunch, mm -hmm. um, like, you know, other things, only one food publication actually chose to cover it. And now we are talking about it. Right. Um, but, you know, I thought that was also really interesting, right? To a lot of the sort of larger food world, this wasn't that big of a piece of news because there's lots of brands. I think that's also what's so interesting is if you if you pay attention to one bubble mm -hmm. in the world of food and drink and lifestyle media, this seems like a huge thing that happened. But if you look at other places in the world of food and drink media, no one's talking about it because it really did exist in this outsized space in this small bubble. Right. Like it, like it, its presence, its was, presence yeah. was really big, but like it actually wasn't that well known in the actual drinks community. And so that's kind of how I want to segue the conversation into why I, I think 
I'm not that surprised um, about the news that we heard this week. And I think the biggest thing that is really a lesson in all of DTC consumership and and entrepreneurship, et cetera, is how much we are we are now learning lessons of the last 10 years of the impact venture capitalists have had in driving growth above all else. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you one can look at a lot of different examples, house being just one of them in terms of what happens when massive amounts of money get involved in building a brand. And I think, you know, one of the key takeaways from this I have is that growth for growth's sake is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even when I was in business school, everyone in the entrepreneurship classes talked about the hockey stick, that the hockey stick was what everyone wants to see when they look at growth for a, for a new venture, right? It's like, if you can explode out of the gate, if you're like a rocket ship that makes that hockey ship stake, you know, hockey, hockey ship, hockey stick, stick <laughs> shape. Why can I speak today? Um, you automatically become a, a business that, that acquirers will be interested in. Right. The problem is that's not really realistic, Or sustainable. Yeah. And we've seen this happen in media and media companies go under because of this. They bought readership. You know, we've seen this happen in other direct-to-consumer businesses, in software, et cetera. It's fueling growth based on money. And so, you know, initially when I saw that that House had raised $19 million, I was like, holy crap. Like, I don't know a lot of entrepreneurs in my circle that have ever raised $19 million. It's It's a lot of money. But then I realized, well, but that's also necessary when it's a pure DTC business. Because the way that DTC works when you don't have anything else in order to back your brand up besides DTC. So what I mean by that is like, you don't have a winery. You don't have a physical space. You don't have stores. You don't have your your goods in someone's store even right yeah you, you don't have, have those relationships with wholesale channels that are going to provide a, a buffer if your dtc sales are variable exactly you have to grow online and the way that you have to grow online is through massive spending and there's a lot of things that have happened in the world of online growth in the past few years ios 14 a lot of dtc companies have said has really crippled their ability to grow the the removal of you know accurate third party cookies etc is hurting people's ability to grow it's why first party cookies are so important now through sites like vinepair but th- these <laughs> things are have really impacted growth and what happens is you have to start you start doing a calculation when you grow as a DTC brand, you basically start saying, what is our cost per acquisition for a customer? So how much are we having to spend to get one sale? And I would assume the cost per acquisition for house was very high, 60, 70, $80 per customer house costs $35 a bottle. Mm-hmm. So you have to assume that you're losing money on the acquisition of every customer, but you hope you're either losing money or breaking even, and then you get a reorder in which then the, the the sort of model goes, it's all gravy, baby, right? So like, then the people start reordering. Repeat, yeah. Right. My question is how much reordering was actually happening, right? That's one thing that's really interesting because if you just look at raw numbers, right? If you have hockey stick, you can keep driving growth of consumers. But this, I think, gets back into the issue with Wink that we'll talk about in a little bit, Zach, is that that's where I think Wink is getting fucked right now. Well, that's because for a brand like this and for a brand like Wink, these subscriptions and these types of products are often big in gift guides yep. and for gifting, but not for individual like personal purchasing, which exactly. is where you're going to get your reorders. And when and when you, you initially make a purchase via 
a price that is discounted, right, then you're less willing to make that purchase in the future at full, full price. price. This is just how consumers work, right? So this is, and this is why I do not think that House will be the last DTC business that we see go under in the next year or so. I think we're going to see a lot of them. I think they will be in kitchen and fashion and in lots of things. But didn't it end up evolving to be like on-premise too? So this is, where I, this is why I think part of my theory of why it went under is correct. You see this massive pivot happening in the last year where Helena admits in interviews recently that they were pivoting hard to on-premise sales because I think alcohol can, an alcohol brand cannot be built in DTC alone. That's going to be my hot take of the entire episode. Mm-hmm. But I really think you cannot build a pure DTC alcohol brand. I think alcohol brands must be built in on and off-premise in addition to DTC. I think sure. DTC is an important part of the equation for a lot of brands. But it's amazing to me how many very high up executives at the different alcohol companies have said to me, like, look, we know that the three tier system is has its issues, but it honestly works for us in a lot of ways. And I don't think that that's a model that you can come in with only $19 million and fix. And the problem is when you're building a brand that's pure DTC, but then you ultimately are going to need to sell to a company that's used to building brands via the three-tier system, that also doesn't match up. So if you're starting to have, you know, Helena says in in her interviews that the, the company that walked away was Constellation. I have to imagine they're not the only people that looked at this brand. Sure. Right? So- I think that it is a hard thing to reconcile for most traditional alcohol companies when they look at the numbers of a DTC brand and the margins can be almost non-existent because of how much you're spending. Uh, you know, they're probably using very high quality juice because they're making high-end vermouth, right? And also the vermouth is very expensive, right? For a traditional company, $35 for what is actually vermouth is very, very, very strange. You'll never find vermouth for that expensive. And you come across the other problem, which, you know, House has faced in trying to enter the traditional markets and any purchaser would face too, which is you get to a point where suddenly you're not selling to a sort of lifestyle consumer. You're trying to sell to, you know, to a bar manager or whoever, and they're going to say, why the fuck am I paying 35, well, more than 35 probably, or whatever, paying $35 or or slightly less for what is essentially just, you know, good, you know, pretty good vermouth when I can get the same quality vermouth for half the price from basically anyone else who's not just calling it some other, you know, they're not calling it a low alcohol spirit substitute. They're just calling it what it is. And that is, I think, you know, in the end, you know, it's like, I'm very curious, you know, I, I think Adam, you especially. Well, hold on, but- Zach, before, before I, I want to, I want to hammer home that point. Cause I think you okay. made an excellent point that we need to, we need to hit home on, which is if you're building a DTC business, right? You have a number, you have a, a price you have to hit online, $35 as Zach, as a buyer, he's going to ask for discounts, mm-hmm. right? If all of a sudden you can get the, the product for cheaper in brick and mortar than you can online, then the online channel essentially falls apart, right? right? So like you have this huge internal conflict the entire time about how do you keep this price consistent? It's very, very difficult. The way wineries are able to pull it off is because a lot of the stuff they sell DTC is 
winery only releases. Yeah. And remember, they have all the other channels to get you to come in in the first place. They have the tasting room. They have yep. placements on wine lists. They have, you know, wines that are specific to bottle shops, et cetera. It's a very different model. And I think that's where this got really confusing yeah. really quickly. Yeah. I was also going to say, like, nobody can try this. Yeah. Unless they order a bo- commit to ordering You a have bottle. to take the risk. Yeah. Well, and to reverse the, the thing you just said, Adam, and, and kind of further expand on it, if you're a brick and mortar retailer, and you have to charge $40 for a bottle of house or whatever because that's what, you know, they're charging X amount and you have to take your margin. Why are you going to take on a product that's so readily available online for less? Like you're just, you know, you're yeah. now you're now you're Barnes and Noble or whatever, right? And you can't get exactly. Amazon. It's the same, it's the same problem on the other head. So it really does make it difficult, I think, for for those kinds of things to enter into a tr- more traditional beverage alcohol retail or on-premise channels maybe on-premise is slightly easier because you're just looking at a different pricing structure and model but but again then where is the call for the very very expensive vermouth like it's hard enough to to get people excited about paying for vermouth you know even if it's just a cocktail ingredient or something in bars and restaurants let alone paying twice what they normally would yep so so zach you were you were going on before i cut you off what was your next problem no 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 i think i was just going to ask that i wonder too you know we we've been focused on house and talking a little bit about some other beverage alcohol brands, but Adam, I think you in particular, but maybe you and Joanna also would know better than I would. Are you seeing some of the same issue in just all these, you kind of hinted at all these DTC categories. And I think about just my incredibly, you know, anecdotal, non-scientific noticing that every couple of months, the ads for DTC businesses on the podcasts I listen to outside of the Vine Pair Podcast Network change. And they're always like, now there's a new mattress company. Now there's a new, yeah. you know, I don't know, uh, vitamin supplement company. Now there's a new erectile dysfunction company or whatever. And I'm, you know, a new uh, telehealth, uh, mental health, you know, whatever. And they're, I, I'm like, you know, are these all businesses all kind of coming up against the same problem, which is like, they're just as a limited, you know, audience for this specific way of acquiring product, not the products themselves, but you just kind of can't grow your DTC mattress company beyond a certain point because especially there I guess everyone buys a mattress and they don't really need mm-hmm. a new one but even with something like wine or, or spirits or whatever where people will be reordering you just kind of get to tap out the size of the market because in the end it's still small compared to people who go into a liquor store or a grocery store and pick something up yeah I mean so I think COVID was a real motherfucker <laughs> and <laughs> I think we for what COVID did and you know, this was already happening pre-COVID, but what COVID did was it caused us to forget the lessons we were starting to learn pre-COVID. And so pre-COVID, if you if you listen to the smartest people out there in the world of marketing and brand building, what they were all saying is the success the successful DTC products understand that they must also have brick and mortar, Warby Parker bonobos away they were all opening brick and mortar stores Mm -hmm. right because they realized that consumers want to touch and feel the products they want to walk in they want to have experience casper right they're they're sleep zones or whatever they're called right Mm -hmm. everyone was opening brick and mortar covid happens and people are like my landlords aren't my you know my landlords not giving me a break on rent i'm getting screwed like you know we're all gonna work from home blah, blah 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 and so everyone's like the future is definitely online and i think everyone got drunk on that And everyone's like, we're going to rush tons of money into online 
et cetera, and we're going to forget that brick and mortar matters. But what what has happened since we've been slowly coming out of this pandemic? Everyone's run back to brick and mortar. You read the Times articles about how there's only a few cities now in the country that are still kind of more remote than in person, right? All the mid-major and smaller cities in the country, everyone's back at the office. Mm-hmm. You know, it's New York, San Francisco, LA that are kind of holdouts, and I think they're going to slowly come back. And you see all these older school DTC brands like Orby Parker, like Casper's that are reopening their brick and mortar stores. And I just think in the case of house, again, I really, I think that Helena is a really brilliant entrepreneur and she's going to do something amazing after this. But I do think in this case, it probably just, you know, this is the thing when you're in an early, with you're in an early stage company, like you're drinking from the fire hose every single day. And the opportunity at the time was to go all in on online because that's what everyone was doing in COVID. And she was perfectly positioned for that. But the problem is when the switch happened really quickly, that's really hard to pivot. Picking up distributors, gaining relationships, you know, on in person in bars, things like that is really, really difficult. And, you know, cash flow is a thing and runway is a thing. And it just kind of petered out, I think. Do you think that not all, maybe for lack of a better word, like a lack of experience in this space also contributed to this? Obviously, like it was incredible that she raised $19 million, but I feel like what we were talking about earlier, like with the three-tier system, like somebody who maybe had some experience in the in the drink space would have seen or foreseen some obvious pitfalls with a straight direct-to-consumer business model? Yes, I don't mean to pick on her. Me neither. I'm just wondering. Um, yeah. But I, I do. Th- there's been a lot of businesses that we've seen in the past six or seven years of VinePair that I think are really brilliant ideas, but they're by someone who has a background in finance, but loved wine or has a background in, you know, advertising and love beer or things like that. And they seem really revolutionary and they get a lot of it right. But the thing they don't get right is actually the really hard intricacies of alcohol. Yeah. I have done a number of interviews where, you know, entrepreneurs have said like totally unforeseen issues in this space because it's extremely complicated and challenging. And I think that's why you do that. You see people who ultimately like that have win after win in the space, people that really understand the space. And I will also say who really like to drink and who have. I don't mean that as like a they're alcoholics, but who really enjoy going out, being at the bars, understanding that hand selling is important, that like basically every piece of the puzzle of building an alcohol brand is really important. Your marketing is important. The the media that you do is really important. Mm-hmm. The you know, so like what you're doing with partners, that your own social presence, but then also where you are on premise, where you are off premise. Like we turn down advertisers all the time at VinePair when they tell us how small they are. So like, look, you can spend with us, but if our reader can't go out and easily find you. What's the point? You need to work on like being everywhere first. Then you should come to us because we're definitely part of the puzzle. But we're a part of the puzzle when you're bigger. You yeah. know, like we don't work with some of these, you know, indie brands that are awesome, but tell us they're like in three or four states, right? Even if they're big in three or four states, because it just doesn't make sense for them or us. We're a national publication. And I actually will recommend to them or our sales team will, hey, we, we really respect this local publication. I know, like for Atlanta, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe advertising creative loafing or one of like the cool zines. Talk to that community because that's where you are. And I think that's a really great way to build a brand in the beginning mm-hmm. is starting in, in one market and growing out from there. I also think it, there's a lot of issues with trying to go national in the beginning. Sure. A lot of issues. It's really hard. It's hard, yeah. And that's also what, they were doing because they were a DTC brand. That's that's kind of like the appeal to investors. We can be national tomorrow. Yep. And yeah, you can, but then when it goes to actually building a distributor network, they don't want to take you national immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. They want to they want to know that like 
they can tell their sales reps that they can easily walk into every single bar and, you know, wine shop in Denver and everyone's going to buy it because Denver's a community that loves the brand. And a lot of brands don't think about that initially. One of the entrepreneurs that I continue to be incredibly impressed with is Mary Taylor. And I know I've talked about her before, but you know, she just tweeted today. She's about to do a million bottles this year. She's on wow. pace to do a million bottles. She has raised almost no money. She's completely bootstrapped this business and she went into small markets first and she's grown her wine brand from there. I think she has done an incredible job and is incredibly impressive. And we don't talk enough about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about other entrepreneurs because raising money is what we've decided in our society is what's the most impressive. Right. And so we sit here and we say, well, this person raised X amount, so they must be really, really incredible. And, and you know, just they must be the best ever. Uh, that's a different skill. Raising money is truly a skill. Yeah. I hated it. Mm-hmm. I really hated raising money. I like to think that I was somewhat good at it, but it's, it's definitely a different skill. And then there's these entrepreneurs that they just fucking go out and they do the work. And Mary is one of them. And she did it without having to say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to let my, I'm going to put my ego aside and I'm not going to say that I have to be in every New York restaurant first. This is actually a brand that's a wine brand for smaller markets because they don't get to have wines like this in these markets and I'm going to be beloved there. And she, and she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think she also is an, uh, illustrates one other piece that I think is important here too, which is not just a, a level of sort of, uh, work ethic and, you know, maybe kind of laying groundwork before you try to grow. But also, I think a real respect for everyone in the kind of in the industry at yeah. different levels. And I think this is something that, you know, house to some extent, I think other others in the DTC space, there, there's been a certain, um, let's say, a, a sort of aloofness towards the, you know, the various traditional methods that beverage alcohol is sold in this country. And look, I mean, listeners know I loathe a lot of things about the three tier system. And I wish it didn't exist, but it does. It's powerful. It, and in some ways, it is effective at what it is sets out to do, which is, you know, get beverage alcohol to people. And if you are the kind of person who is out here, you know, talking about how you're, you know, kind of don't need it, are better than it, are, you know, kind of reinventing the wheel here in a spectacular fashion. And then all of a sudden you come kind of like, oh, wait, I, I actually need big distribution. I need mm-hmm. a traditional beverage alcohol company to help me out of my jam like i'm not saying that people aren't making these decisions based purely on kind of the math but it's a business of personalities even frankly as i think adam you can attest at the highest levels like people liking you even when you're talking about multi shit multi-million maybe multi-billion dollar deals is still a thing that matters and i think yeah part of what has made mary successful is she is a likable person who doesn't sort of talk shit about anyone you know competitors whatnot i think the extent of her shit talking is when she came on and talked about trump's tariffs but you know that was more uh, more or 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 she'll be online like shit talking shipping companies which i understand like it's (laughs) it's annoying when you've got pallets of wine and you're trying to sit you're trying to sell them and they're stuck in the ocean i get that but yeah but and i think that not again not to pick on anyone in particular here but i think that there is just a sort of an important reminder here that you don't know who you're going to need and so it's always you know, it's a good idea not to badmouth anybody, especially people who might, you know, you might be asking Buy to you. cut you a check down the road. <laughs> well, and I think that that's important too, is like, you know, th- there's in, in alcohol, like I realized this very quickly when we, when we started Vine Pair is that like, we, we definitely 
came in with chips on our shoulders, right? Like we're, we're, we're coming in here to like bring wine and, and beer and spirits to the people and we're going to do it differently and whatever. And like, that's part of our ethos and we still live that. But I do also understand that like alcohol beverage industry is very, very complicated and it's better to ask than say, oh, I, I, oh, I know. Or this is stupid, and I think it, I think it needs to go away. Like, there's a lot in the industry that is very, very complicated, and ultimately, yeah, like these are the people that will buy these kinds of brands, and there's so many of these brands out there. And I just, I do think, at this point in time, what seems to matter more to a lot of the companies that will acquire isn't just how fast you grow, but it's actually like what do your margins look like. How loyal is your audience? What happens, like, how, how do we take your brand? Do people know you? Have they heard of you? Like, it's a lot more than just, like, is there a small group of influencers we can point to that love it, but maybe all got sent it for free? It's like the viability of your business. Yeah. Look, one of the best examples of a brand that's kind of tumbling now due to DTC is Glossier. It's another one. Well, isn't that what, uh, yeah, Helena wanted to be? Yeah. And, I mean, again, it's, you know, all of a sudden – the audience isn't there. And the question is, well, because did it, you know, it only ever had one in-person store in New York. Did it ever just grow in a way that wasn't actually sustainable? Like brand building is really hard and takes years, decades, even some brands would argue, right? It's, there's a lot that goes into brand building. And again, this is why I go back to this being, I don't think always the fault of the founder. I think a lot of this gets, should be laid at the feet of investors. Yeah. They, there like hockey is, stick isn't the best. No, way, actually. And, and the timeline for certain brands should not be applied to all brands. Fine. You want to say that in social media, we've seen that you should be growing by 10x every year to be a viable social media property. Whatever. Fine. Give them a 10 year window. But that's also what's really important for everyone to realize. Most investors who invest institutionally have a 10 year window in which they expect to make a return. That means you have 10 years to exit. That window needs to be extended for actual brands that are trying to become real brands, right? For for apparel, for kitchen, for food, for even media. It takes a really long time. And we've been lucky to have very patient investors, but like a lot of brands aren't. And that's when the pressure sets in. That's when it's like, you need to grow. If you don't grow, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And we don't, we don't mean like growth where it's 5% growth, 10% growth year over year. We're asking for 100x tremendous you know tremendous growth year over year and that's when you can find yourself with a problem where you are just spending 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 especially when you find you know when something starts clicking right and where, where that then can be a problem for dtc brands is maybe you find an audience that's responding really well to the brand that maybe wasn't the intended audience but they're buying 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 online that the ads are working right on instagram or whatever so you keep so so what what traditional, you know, models all you do is you just throw more cash at it. But maybe that's not the audience that actually will be loyal to the brand long term. But you don't know that because you're not you're not testing really. You're testing to see what ads you can what what ads are the cheapest to acquire the customers. But you're not looking at like, okay, well, what's the you know, the reorder rate or, you know, how how many reorders are happening or, you know, is it one demographic compared to others? You're just you're trying to grow. And that can be a really problematic thing and investors do that to founders all the time yeah i think it puts a lot of pressure 
on businesses and then it leads to hasty business decisions. Yeah. I mean, look, we've worked for other startups. Mm-hmm. You know, we know it's, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's just what happens. And look, I think people should, people should start drinks businesses. I think there's lots of innovation that can happen in the drink space that still hasn't happened, but you have to ask yourself when you start the business, like, are you willing to be all in? Are you willing to be out at night, sitting at the bar, drinking once you, once it's sold in drinking that drink, right? Are you willing to, you know, be talking about it nonstop, not just about how brilliant you are as a founder, but actually like that brand, are you willing for the brand to be more than you are and for the brand to really represent you and for you to really pound the pavement? If you are, then 100% go for it. If you're not, or you think that there's a quicker, easier way to build an alcohol brand, you shouldn't start an alcohol brand. Can't say it better than that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we didn't even talk about Wink, but I mean, it's pretty amazing that their stock price now, I mean, their, their entire value of the company now based on their stock price is $21 million. Yeah. I mean, just, again, another example. Um, we will chat next week. If you guys have thoughts, hit us up at podcast.vinepair.com. Always love to hear what you think. And I'll talk to you both on Friday. Talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.